The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 21 is Trey Gunn. Now, Trey is well known for his tap guitar work. We'll talk about what that is. In addition to his over a dozen solo albums since the mid-90s, he was a member of the seminal prog rock band King Crimson in its 90s and aughts configurations. Now, the man behind King Crimson is Robert Fripp, and Trey has played with several other projects with Robert that we'll go into. Right now, you are hearing a live solo performance from his 2015 EP Live at the Hugo House. We're going to be talking about the song Kuma from his second solo album, The Third Star, 1996. Then turning to King Crimson's Level 5 from the Power to Believe album, 2003. Then backwards to God's Monkey from the David Sylvian and Robert Fripp album, The First Day, from 1993. Finally, we're going to listen to one of his most recent things from The Security Project, Live 1, 2016. The song is No Self-Control. For more information on Trey, please see TreyGun.com. For more information on this podcast, please visit NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. Hope you enjoy the interview. And now I'm here with Trey Gunn. I'm happy to be here. So that was a little bit of that Live at Hugo House recording. So is that kind of thing improvised or planned? Or you said it didn't even have a title, so I assume that it was improvised. A little bit of both. I've only performed it a couple of times, and that particular performance was the very first time. It's actually quite a complicated piece because it's live and there's a lot of layers. I'm using some technology to capture loops, but yet make it feel like it's not a looping piece. So the end of it has a lot of improvisation. It's a lot of improvisation. However, the structure is fixed. Well, let's use that as a transition, get pretty quickly to your first song. The song's Kuma from the third star from your second soul CD, 1996. But you have a slew of stuff, what, 11 albums since then? (laughs) Solo albums in addition to your... I think so. I've kind of stopped counting now, but yeah, that sounds about right. So it seems like your style of composition here is more like a jazz performer than a rock guy that then has to think about what's in my soul and how can I get 12 songs with lyrics that make sense? And that kind of, you know, that's kind of where I'm used to coming from. Yeah, that's a great way of describing that world. And I do that world as well. But with my solo work, I'm half interested in, I mean, I guess it's a product of what I happen to be interested in at the moment. And of course, my solo work is only part of my work, but it's kind of one of the vehicles. And I'm interested in exploring the technology that I'm using at the moment, which may be a particular instrument. It may be a particular kind of processing. It may be a particular kind of use of the studio or a recording strategy. That's part of it. But then also, as I kind of go back and look over my catalog, periodically I do that, especially when I'm trying to go forward and I'm not sure where to go. I kind of go back and do a little summary of what it seems like Trey is or has been. And I'm very interested in composition and structure. So the form of music has a lot of meaning to me, the form of a particular piece of music that combined with a context for improvisation. So in that sense, it is kind of like a jazz. I'm probably more not wanting to go as fully improvisational as a lot of jazz players, but I have to have it in there. So 
I guess those are some of the kind of strategies I use. Then there may be a theme. There may be like an extra musical theme, but that's not always apparent. And I'm not always needing to push that forward. That's just a kind of a strategy to whatever I'm excited in at the moment. So it's not like the reason Miles Davis has so many recordings is because every time he would play, it would be recorded and released as an album, period. Whereas your songs no. are are more structured. It's just a matter of you being very prolific in sitting down with your instrument and obviously not just using your hands, but using your brain and coming up with these new variations. I don't know. It's very easy for somebody. We're going to get to King Crimson with the second song here. But to hear the kind of patterns folks are about to hear with Kuma here, these repetitive, and I still use the word Frippertronics for that, although I'm sure Frippertronics refers in particular to what the delay pedal that he was using, a particular technique that you don't use, but it's a matter of these repetitive things that came out of, was it the League of Crafty Guitarists that kind of got you on this road of doing this? Well, okay, so not entirely sure who your listeners are, but maybe let me just break that down just a little bit. Yes. Um, we should give more so background. You're referring to this particular, I can almost use the word device, and I'm kind of making air quotes, a musical, a particular kind of vocabulary that I like to use and I do use, where there's a repetitive thing and you sang it perfectly in seven right there, which is what this piece Kuma has in it. Because my instrument is so unusual, I'm playing a, essentially a 10-string guitar that has a group of bass strings and a group of guitar strings, and you play it by tapping pretty exclusively. So both hands are on the fretboard like a keyboard. And this was the first album, right, that you actually used the war guitar, whereas you were doing the Chapman stick, which people might be right. more familiar with from the Peter Gabriel most of his catalog where Tony Levin would play right, that, right. you know, those, that weird bass sound, it's because he's using this tap on technique. Yeah. And they're both part of kind of what I call the family of touch guitars. They're very similarly played. But so for this kind of vocabulary that you're talking about, I'm playing one pattern with one hand on one group of strings and another pattern with the other hand on the other group of strings. And that makes this, they're actually very short little patterns. The one in the bass is a four note pattern in, in two, four. And the pattern in the right is a, a kind of a four note group as well, but it's in seven, eight. So the two things kind of revolve around each other systematically or I don't know, mathematically, just whatever the groove is now bigger than any of the little bits because the little bits don't quite fit together. So I kind of developed this technique of playing these two time signatures at the same time and you end up with a much longer groove. And it's a very specialized sound. I don't use it all the time because it's so specialized. And, uh, you know, there's more of it coming in the future, no doubt. But this is kind of when this idea first kind of emerged. It emerged on this piece. And then the other element is the percussionist Bob Muller who's playing tablas and drum kit on it. And because of the tablas are pitched instruments, we had to deal with me being in sync with the pitch as well of the tabla. And you can't have, I mean, you could have 12 tablas, but basically Bob only had two, a C-sharp tabla and a D-tabla. So I structured all these kind of interlocking, kind of marimba, Indonesian gamelan sounding parts around these two pitches, the D and the C-sharp. So he could switch between two pitches, but I found ways to make different chords around those pitches. And a good chunk of the piece is built around that. We're being extremely muso here, but, you know, that's underneath the hood. Well, let's play it first, and then we'll get even further. <laughs> Thank you. 
I'm glad you're saying yes. The, you got the two time signatures going top of each other because it doesn't have a seven eight feel. You're, I know your initial riff is in seven eight, but because you've got a straight up, you know, I guess it's just shaker or something. You know, it's not a full yes. The rhythm going behind it that it's just a straight ahead beat. Like the fact that you can go through that and you can do your riff twice and then it's back in time. After 14 beats, you're back in time with the shaker, whereas the second time you're on the offbeat compared to it. Yeah, and that's a way that I've always felt these what we call asymmetrical or odd time signatures. I don't feel them as a kind of a... There has been a tendency, of course, now the world's all mixed up, but the tradition in the jazz world is that you kind of have either a mutated bar or a tagged-on bar, so there's kind of a little pickup in the time. And I don't do odd time signatures like that. I do them just how you said, where there's this low, slow pulse underneath the whole thing, and that the time can move however it wants. It can be in 3, it can be in 7, it can be in 11. You can shift around, but you still feel it in your body, not with a hiccup, but kind of this deep rock and roll kind of groove underneath it. I'm not unique. I didn't invent that, but that's just how I feel it. So that's why in this piece we play in five, we play in mostly five and seven, but there's still this groove underneath it. And that's what gets me the most satisfied. Now, obviously you're not thinking in terms of straight up chords for these sections because you're not playing like a full chord, but there's a definite, you play with one tonal center for a while and then you move up a half step, kind of, it's like the blues. So you're grooving on the one and then they switch to the four, but instead of the four, you're just going up a half step and you're sitting on that chord for a while and then you go back down. Wow, we're really getting into it. You're almost right, but since you're going there, I'm going to take you right there. What happens is, yes, the tabla moves up a half step and the right hand of my instrument moves up a half step. I think of this more as kind of a, I know it's not like Baroque counterpoint, but I think of it that way in terms of how there is harmony, even though it's all single notes. So the right hand moves up a half step, but the bass side moves down a tritone. Ah. So that's how I get this strange harmonic shift that one of the hands moves in half steps and the other moves generally in tritones. And I know you're a music theory guy. Do you think? Obviously, because we're digging into the, the theory. Yeah. Well, but sure. are you thinking of it in terms of music theory when you're writing it? Are you primarily thinking in terms of, let me just try my hand up here <laughs> as a way of feeling out and writing them? No, I'm not thinking theoretically and analytically. I'm just looking for the sounds that work that can, in this context, Bob and I were looking for a way to make some shifts and not be just totally flat with the groove because it gets boring after a while if you just sit on the C-sharp. So I was looking for some interesting ways to make a shift, and those shifts are their harmonic shifts and rhythmic shifts because the shift actually goes to 5-4 at that point, mm-hmm. too. So, no, I can only have this conversation about all of this after the fact. and in, in the moment, I'm just looking for what sounds right and what's moving the music along in a way that I find interesting. Then I go back and say, oh, here's what we did. And then are you doing some of this when you're doing it? Well, actually, I, I watched you do it live with the band, so I know this is not the case, but I know when you do solo, you do loops on some of this. So when I'm hearing, like, you've got this high, swoopy part that sounds like a synthesizer, but I'm sure it's the war guitar through your guitar synth or something, is that layered after the fact? That's not an extra hand, right? <laughs> no, no, in the studio, it's not an extra hand. And... I can't remember how many tracks we were limited to on the record. It was something like 16 tracks. So every once in a while, I just felt like I needed another texture. So we'd added an overdub bit. And then in the live band, and actually when I went to listen to this piece of music, 
before we spoke, I couldn't find the studio version. So I just listened to the live version and the form is identical. It's one of these cases where the piece is the piece and the only thing that's really different is the solo or the guy who's doing these droning textures. But actually, I got to the point where I could improvise within these little patterns as well. So sometimes we'll go to a section and I'll keep the groove going and kind of vary the marimba part, as it were. Yes, I watched one or two live versions. I wasn't sure when these were from. It looks like somewhere like 2008, at least what was one of these was uploaded. When you had the full Trey Gun band, and I like that you actually found a second tap guitar player well, what's funny about Joe is that he was not a tapping guy. He took that instrument on just to be in the band. He, he liked the music and was interested in that. He actually was a keyboard player and a guitar player and picked that thing up. I got him a spare to play with. He picked it up. And those live performances are at the end of a two-week period of our first time ever playing together. So, yeah, he's a bit of a wizard. And we worked together on other projects since then. You can start the pattern yourself, but then when the solo time comes, then you just pass it right off to him and he matches your sound, what you were doing exactly, and you can soar above the clouds there. Yeah. The disadvantage and the advantage to my instrument is that I can cover bass territory or any territory that a guitar can cover. And the disadvantage, the advantage is I can do all that. The disadvantage is that in a live context, if I'm the only bass player, I can't really leave the bass territory. So I'm off always looking for instrumentalists who can cover the bass territory. And this is one context where if I had another guy who played my instrument, he could solo or he could go into the bass territory. I have another project with this crazy accordion player from Finland, and we do the same thing. He can go into the bass territory, and I can go into the high register and solo and vice versa. And that's the ideal live context. Is that still called KTU? or K2, yeah. We call K2, it K2, okay. Wow, we're digging into it here. Yeah, so you've got the shift here around two minutes in where you just go into these sort of 16th note pulse in your right hand and then you play these nice swooping bass lines that really reminded me of Chris Squire or maybe okay. Chris Squire and T. Steve Howe on top of each other. <laughs> it sounded yeah, like it yeah. from the Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe album or something. You know, I will have to say this particular piece kind of incorporated all these different techniques that I was interested in, in developing on the instrument at the time and then just tried to make some nice music out of it. And that was one where I'm playing a repetitive beep, 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 beep in the right hand, little chords that are moving around and just getting a nice bass melody going on in the left hand. And that's not something I do very often. Uh, a lot of people do that on the instrument and it just worked on this piece really well and it's fairly dramatic the way it comes in and goes out. And then it sounded like maybe on the recording you're using an octaver on the bass part or something to give you the higher octave or you're just overdubbing another part? No, I overdubbed uh, I okay. overdubbed another a doubling of it up high on a different sound, which we didn't do live. It turned out we didn't need it live. But on the record, I felt like just giving it, giving the melodic a, a little more support. I'm not that interested in being a purist in terms of the instrument being solo. I don't care. When I make a record, I just want it to sound good. If I need to overdub, I overdub. If I don't, I don't. Sure. And then you've got the kind of nice, I don't know, snake charmer solo at the end. What a mode is that? Can you say anything about where that came from, how that fits in? Given that you're not playing over chords, so it's a little more feeling around, or is it more freeing that you don't have... There's an A major chord behind me, so I have to kind of stick there. Or if I divert from that, then I do it in a kind of self-conscious way. That, uh, definitely thinking in the mode. I think it's a Phrygian mode with a flat two to be very muso, but I didn't actually listen all the way through the piece. <laughs> and I haven't played it in so long, but I believe that's what it is. 
I can just kind of group the notes that work in my mind and then just improvise on that and fit it into the melodic character, which is, I remember that being a challenge because it's pretty hard to keep track of the rhythm underneath that while you're soloing, but it worked. I can see your attention to structure here because even though it's an instrumental and it doesn't have the simplifying feature of verse, chorus, verse, chorus or something like that. Yeah, or even a head and a bunch of solos like you would do a jazz tune. No. No, that doesn't interest me. I mean, one of the questions I was kind of working with at the time was, how do you do instrumental music that isn't classical music or isn't jazz, but still is engaging? And that really was the kind of overriding question I was working with on this particular record. Because as soon as you put a voice on a piece of music, the voice is so captivating, the sound of a voice, unless it's a horrible voice, but even a horrible voice, just the voice itself has so much interest in it that the music automatically retreats to the background in a certain level. And if you take that voice away, now what are you going to do? And so you can't just take a voice off a piece of music. You need something else to go in there. And jazz musicians have their answer and classical musicians have their answer. And in a way, this record is kind of my answer of how I approach that. So it really is about not having a voice, funny enough, even though we're talking about it as if the way you're comparing it to vocal music, it really is how I was thinking about it. You slap a voice on top of this groove, you've got something completely captivating right away, but then the groove stuff retreats more to the background. So that's what I was working with. Yeah, I always have very mixed feelings about if you took one of these self-contained, complete instrumentals and just, oh, let's just David Byrne put some uh, right. some vocals over it. What does that do to it? Does that make it, it kind of makes it more accessible? It kind of makes it into a song, but at the same time... Does that diminish, like you were saying, some of what you already put into it, the care? From my perspective, and I work with a lot of singers as well, you have to strip away what's underneath there. You have to clarify it more and kind of boil it down to more of its essence. And It needs to be less complicated. Otherwise, you just get this foggy background that's just too dense. And that's Trey's way of looking at it. But you could do that, and I could do that with even some of the elements of this, but they would change. They would have to change. Well, let's transition to introducing the second song on the table. So, I mean, King Crimson is known, at least in part, as a vocal band, although vocals are tend not to be layered. I guess maybe if you look at the discipline of the beat record, there are probably some songs that I could pull out that really do sound like they were completely arranged instrumentals that then somebody layered something, then Adrian layered a vocal on top of. But for the most part, what comes to mind first are these things that, like 21st Century Schizoid Man, where you've got the vocal section where the music is pretty stripped down under it, and then there's a big instrumental explosion that goes on for 10 minutes or whatever. Right. And this song, Level 5, this sounds like it could shrink into a vocal part, but it never does. It's just instrumental for the whole seven minutes plus of it. It does. It's relentlessly what it is. I've always been interested in these crimson things like, well, how much of it is Robert Fripp because he has such distinctive sounds like we were saying that repetitive note technique that came out of around the discipline era. But then also the Red album from 1974, that song Red, that instrumental seems like the granddaddy of this level five song. I would agree with that. Maybe it's Great Uncle. The interesting thing for me about Crimson is that, well, for one, it's been around so long at this point. I mean, we're getting close to 50 years, 1969. I can't do the math, but (laughs) it's been around a long time. And Robert has very clearly had it go away for long periods of time 
five or six years in the 70s and then a 10 year break from the 80s Crimson up until when I joined in like 93, 94. And the band has mutated a lot. And then just like you were saying, there's song material, there's instrumental material, and then there's kind of this hybrid mix of both where you have very kind of floored, involved instrumental sections combined with songs. And for me, the songs date the music for better or worse. They show what time period this music came from, but the instrumentals don't. And for me, Red is just a classic out of time piece. It's from 1973, I think, maybe 74. I don't really know. I didn't know the band at the time. And it's just this powerful kind of rock orchestra piece. And yes, it gave, for whatever reason, they didn't do pieces like that in the 1980s Crimson. They had a different vocabulary and they might have performed Red, but the vocabulary of the Red and also this piece Lark's Tongue and Aspic, it kind of came back with the Crimson that I joined. And even more specifically, there was a six-piece Crimson before this Crimson that we're listening to. I saw the six-piece. I saw that live in Ann Arbor. So Yeah. And so actually, no, we had some of the Red kind of material with Vroom and Thrack. But then when the Crimson mutated in a four-piece with myself, Robert Adrian and Pat Massolato, then we kind of took this big, heavy instrumental thing to a whole other level. And whether you see us as pioneers of kind of this new metal thing or not is really kind of up to you. But it was a direction we were kind of going is like, how do we take this big, heavy stuff and just make it even heavier, but make it modern and make it play in a big room? That's one of the tricks of this kind of fancy instrumental music is that what works in a 500 seat room doesn't work in a 4,000 seat room. And then we actually did some shows with Tool that were quite big. And there again, you can't really pull off some of the little wiggly bits. You kind of need these big gestures. So this piece is also part of that. It's got this big, heavy, slow gesture that Pat is playing all this sputtering, crazy electronics. And then, of course, we have this fast little... This piece has everything in it. It has fast little wiggly bits. It has chromatic solos from Robert. It has screeching twang bar solos from Adrian. It has Pat and I playing these crazy counter riffs. It has these interlocking, you know, Robert and Adrian did this interlocking kind of gamelon plinky sounding stuff in the eighties. But in this 2000 version of Crimson, we did power distorted interlocking stuff and they do these cascading lines while Pat and I are playing all sorts of crazy stuff. I could go on and on about the era and how we did it. One thing that's interesting about this era of Crimson and with this piece in particular, and here again, I was looking for a studio version to listen to before we talked. I couldn't find my studio version, so I went to the live version. And when you go on YouTube to look for a live version, well, there's dozens of them. And it reminded me that what happened with this kind of a piece, even though the large structure is very fixed and a lot of the small moments are fixed, for the rhythm section, Pat and I, when we would do, a let's say, a six... 10 week tour, we were constantly mutating parts of the piece. So a lot of the hits that we would do, we would change them as we go along week by week. And sometimes the piece would mutate. So there was this element of the thing just being constantly alive and we were constantly chasing new ways of doing things. And that's also in this piece. So there you go.
So I'm a little surprised to hear how much you were varying this in the live version because it seems like a lot of your time you're just stuck to having to hold that thing down through at least significant portions of the song. Well, having to, I think of it as get to, but, (laughs) but then also, you know, Robert will carry that riff and Pat and I will play some very strange little articulated hits here and there. And that's one of the elements that we would mutate from night to night. Sometimes we'd hit on the downbeat. Sometimes we'd hit on an offbeat. Sometimes we'd come up with a series of very odd hits just to see if our guitar players would be able to hold it together or we could make them laugh on stage even amidst this heaviness. Our third song is also going to be a collaboration that you did with Robert. So how do these things actually get written? Does he come in kind of with the structure or anybody can you pick this in particular? Is it did some of the riffs, the main riffs come out of your head in this or how does that work? We were open to any possible strategy and we used a lot of different strategies. And this one was a particular kind of strategy that wasn't unusual in what's a a very kind of sounding musical gesture. The way this kind of works is that these little building blocks would come in and Robert would come in with a little building block. It might be, it might be that it might be that and that's it. And then there may be this other building block over here. That's, and then, da, 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 you know, and so we just start playing with them and seeing what keys you could move them to, what other rhythms you could move them to, what things could go against it. Sometimes somebody else would have other little musical blocks that they were working with and we would see if they would fit together. And then slowly we would just piece the thing together. And then maybe Robert would show up with like he'd have a revelation one morning. Oh, here's the intro. And he pretty much kind of walked in with the intro which is just this three chord descending thing. So it took a lot of time is very laborious and it's just building a house with little bricks and changing the shape of the bricks and seeing if you change the shape of this brick, Oh, well then we have this other addition here that we can do. Does this work? Where does it fit? Does it fit here? Oh, I'd like to try this solo here. Uh, what's underneath the solo isn't working. We need a different kind of thing for under your solo. Okay. Now we have the big form Now let's just play it and play it and play it and take it on. Actually, one of the brilliant things that Robert has done with Crimson specifically is that the music goes on the road before you record it, which gives you a chance to just play it in, get it in the body, decide what's really really convincing about it or what's not. Are the tempos right? The tempos usually change after you play it live. They usually speed up, not always. And then what would happen is I would say the rhythm section, Pat and I would often start adding in little changes here and there. And that's kind of how this particular thing got built. Most other projects, they don't have the time to develop this way. And usually people bring in more of an idea, but this is a real kind of group construction. So it seems with the precision, which these individual pieces are all put together, is there room in the live show to kind of on the fly Pat or Robert or whoever is kind of leading at the moment, let's just add four extra measures here. Let's just double the length of this. Let's go into the B section here. Yeah. No, not in a piece like this. Okay. We had other pieces where that kind of thing was built into the piece, but that's a special thing and everybody knows that it's built in. Sure. And then we would also leave places for pure improvisation. So there was a spectrum. Our manager at the time, David Singleton, who's Robert's business partner in England, he liked to call this crimson the backwards improvising crimson, and that the guitar players often had really fixed parts, but the rhythm section was often improvising. But we wouldn't change the structure. 
It was more like, what can we get away with without destroying the structure? So a part like the do da do da do da where the guitars are echoing each other, which is just crazy that that's actually done between two guitars as opposed to somebody with a delay pedal. Yeah. Like, where would something like that come from? Would it be somebody has written the first part and the other guy says, hey, what if I echo you on this? Or That was kind of one of our interlocking vocabularies. And so any riff that you had can be turned into that. Mm-hmm. And so we were constantly kind of saying, could this work? Let's try it interlocking or let's try it. Sometimes we would even do it in a round of three where I'm the third guy. And on a couple of the other pieces on this record, we do that for a little section. And when I'm the third guy, I also have the option of having two notes at once so I can bring a bass note in or not. So it was just kind of part of the musical vocabulary. And I really can't remember how that came together. But you're correct in that it actually is one riff either mirrored identically with the same notes sometimes or notes at a different harmony. And then, of course, if it's an ascending line, then you can flip it around and make it descending. So that's why in this piece, sometimes you hear the thing cascading down and other times you hear it kind of weaving all over the place, maybe ascending, maybe not. So it's just another device that can be used, hopefully, to good taste. Now, I know uh, it was on the tour that I saw that with the double trio that a good chunk of the time, Robert was playing guitar synth or something like that. It sounded like you guys were able to just add whole symphonic parts to the sound without picking up a keyboard. Have you used that technique as well? Or is that something you get into? Or Yeah, at the time, I, I believe both Adrian and Robert had synths. And I also had synth as well, MIDI synth triggered by the guitar. I got away from that pretty quickly and don't do it anymore. I process any of the strange sounds that you're hearing from me are coming directly from the strings that I'm mm-hmm. I'm treating. And I don't think Robert's doing it either. I don't even know if Adrian's doing it anymore, to be honest. You can get so many interesting sounds with treating the strings themselves nowadays that I really don't know how much synth is going on. But keep in mind that double trio crimson that you saw kind of picked up where the 80s Crimson left off, and then we went forward. So there was a lot of... Guitar synth was a big deal in the 80s. It was the first time it come out, and Robert and Adrian were pretty much... I don't know if they were the only pioneers, but they took it to the extreme level. So I don't know if either of them are even using it anymore. Yeah, around that time... Actually, the, the guitarist who was a jazz-oriented guy in my own band got one, and we barely let him use it because it, it was just an invitation for... Sounds that were less tasteful than the guitar could make by itself. But you guys had good sounds, I felt like, on those couple albums. (laughs) That's the problem. When you have a really crappy synthesized saxophone sound and it's the guitar player doing it, oh, it's already as bad as it can be. You know, you have to figure out some angle on it. And in truth, those guitar synths, you know, they made one or two really cool sounds and then the rest were pretty shitty. Thankfully, Robert and Adrian picked the good ones or then treated that sound in a way that made it tasteful. Although for some of these, there's blistering parts to this tune in particular with these, which you could pretty much having a sound be pretty does not seem to be the uh, the criterion here. Yeah. So I totally forgot about the thracking section. So the thracking section is a whole other vocabulary that's very similar to what we were talking about in the piece Kuma, where, yes, we have these kind of, I'm making air quotes, ugly guitar chords. It's not a chord that most people would pick. And half the group is playing in five and half the group is playing in seven. And so you get this giant evolving rhythmic structure 
that you don't really know what's happening. It's technically it's two asymmetrical rhythms flipping around each other, which takes 35 beats to come around. But then it, it's also got this visceral gang, 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 gang. It's got something really visceral to it. And that we used in a piece called Thrack, and we could just call it Thracking. And it comes up when it fits into a piece that needs that kind of thing. And level five just fit in there. Which the new element here seems to be, I don't recall on Thrack, like you doing that and then breaking into a and then going back to that. Like, it's a pretty unique thing. No, we didn't do that. Those fast lines, those were, that's a Robert thing. And I just have the facility to be able to do that and double with him to give it super oomph. And we worked that out and it's pretty, it was pretty exciting. Well, let's bring in the third song, which is an almost crimson band. You weren't in crimson yet, but this is a 1993 the song is God's Monkey from the David Sylvian and Robert Fripp album, The First Day, which I didn't remember that you had actually co-written this song and most of the songs on here. Yeah, it's an about face from this other material. Yes. <laughs> of course, you have David Sylvian and his beautiful voice, and essentially a song structure. And the bass in particular, I mean, for half the song, it's just dum, dum, dum. <laughs> it's, it's almost an R&B kind of thing. Yeah, it's definitely a groove thing, and there's just a lot of cool things about this. Funny enough, to here again, I couldn't find a studio version of this online, so I listened to the live version. No, that's not true. I did find a studio version of this one, and I kind of have a complaint about the song that I prefer the live version better, because the ending on the studio version just goes on and on and on and on and on. I wouldn't make that choice today, but this record was pieced together in the studio. Robert and David and I had a... We worked together as a trio for a couple of tours, which was a fascinating trio, no drums, just the three huh. of us, a very ambient soundscapey with Frippertronics show, mostly instrumental and these just kind of dripping atmospheres that would just float through the room. We did a couple of tours and you had this kind of beautiful liquid atmosphere for 15, 20 minutes. And then David would come in singing and <laughs> it was such a perfect balance of this beautiful atmosphere and then you would get a song and no drums and it was really fascinating and then when we went to make the record we decided to kind of flush it out with drums and jerry Murata was the drummer on that who i'm working with another project right now we recorded in woodstock and that particular piece god's monkey uh, was written in the studio yeah, we pieced it together in the studio, and it has a lot of elements. One of the elements, which I don't know if you sussed it out or not, but the clean bending guitar solo in the beginning is actually me. Oh, okay. Which was the first time I'd ever, David kind of lured me into using this Digitech whammy, and he was like, you do a solo here, and use your little whammy thing. I was like, all right, sure, why not? And then I hadn't really spent time doing anything like this, and we made these two nice little solo breaks that I ended up having to do live while playing the bass part and the bass part in that section, I think it's in seven. Yeah. So I had, I had to learn this super choreography of the two hands together playing two different lines, which I didn't really do a lot. And then also the whammy pedal, I had to whammy between a fourth and a fifth. So I had to do different kinds of whammies at the same time. And so it was a triplicate choreography and it works. Yeah.
So the element that was added besides Jerry Murata for the studio version here was, I see David Bottrell produced this, and this is right after he did the Peter Gabriel Us album in 1992. So I got a lot of the digging in the dirt feel in terms of the way he engineered the drums, at least. 
Yeah. And David also did what for many of us was the beginning and end all of world music, which is the last temptation of Christ. Oh, yeah. Passion soundtrack of Gabriel's. And that's where um, David Sylvian found him. And uh, I had never met David before, and it was great working with him. And he went on to do the Thrack, Crimson Thrack record with us as well, and many other records now. And yeah, you know, getting a drum sound is not in my vocabulary. I don't really concern myself that much with that. I either let the drummer do that or I let the engineer producer do that. So I just kind of heard David get good sounds. But the sounds on this record are also Jerry's playing some kind of electronic drums. I can't remember if it's... Uh, a Roland, I don't remember what the time, but he kind of mixed in these electronic drums with funny enough on this record, Jerry did at least two tracks where there's another song called John the Birdman. Where he plays, it's really kind of a new Orleans vibe, the way he's doing the snare and the, and the tight drum sound. And I kind of mixed that with this song in my mind as well, that it's got, I wouldn't say a new Orleans feel, but it's just got this kind of dry drum kit mixed in with these weird electronic sounds. Yep. That's David and, and Jerry Murata doing their thing. So tell me more about how this was written that, I mean, you've got your main groove part that's under all the verses and then you've got your seven, four turnaround part. You're done. The thing, at least for me to put one's jaw on the ground is that the thing about this song and all these songs with David singing on them, he wrote the lyrics after the music was done. And man, I think we almost recorded the whole track before he even put the vocals on. If that wasn't the case for this song, it was the case for some of the other ones. And he kind of even prided himself on like saying, I can write to anything. I was like, well, we'll give you something even more challenging to write on than write to this, buddy. But he could weave it together not just melodically in the sound of his voice and when he chose to sing. Because, of course, he could have chosen to sing anywhere, but he chose where he chose. But also, lyrically, it would just weave the whole thing together. I mean, I'm going to say he didn't do the vocals completely at the end, but he did the vocals kind of when we would take a day off and he would just come in and the next day, there's all the vocals. Holy shit. The lyrics done, sung well, everything. And then we would go in and finesse it. Where you'd add your little solo thing and like you were talking about. Yeah, well, that was done before the vocals as well. We pieced this one together in the studio in Dreamland, and we weren't there in the studio very long. It really was just the two sections, the 7-4 and how we used it, and then when the verses were, and then a couple of chord changes. I mean, it's pretty simple when you peel it apart. However, what's fascinating about this track, and then even more so on the other tracks on the record, is just the flushing out of the textures and making... For me, this recording was really making a sculpture, and it was not about capturing live performance per se, but let's put a little color here, let's add a color here, what's missing, where can we build up this whole sculpture, and I really love working in the studio that way, and... Really, this was my first chance to do this with David, just a, such a high caliber of composer and, and studio guy. So for me, this record is pretty special for that reason. So it's co-written with both Davids. Uh, I know David Bottrell is, is credited with drum programming and things on this. Do you know how David and Jerry would contribute? How does that work together? I think basically what happened was Jerry recorded a bunch of stuff and David made some choices about what he would grab and how he would use it. Gotcha. Okay. I, th I think that's how it went down. I guess if the drums are recording with electronics, then you've got... <laughs> it was kind of a, also David and Sylvian and, and Robert's way of acknowledging that your contribution to this piece goes beyond producer or engineer. 
you're really helping us piece together the structure and, and how things are going. And both those guys are really generous in that way. They don't believe in taking credit for somebody else's work at a very deep way. They, they approach it, approach it that way. Whereas a lot of other people will just slap their name on something. Whereas there's a lot of other people working behind the scenes. And my take is that's why David Bottrell's, you see him as a writer because he really helped shape the piece. So this was your second project with Robert, right? After Sunday All Over the World, or I guess League of Crafty Guitarists is before that. Well, and also there was something called the Robert Fripp String Quintet. Right. Yeah, and then we did some sessions with Eno, too. I don't know. We've done a lot of different stuff and all different contexts, too. So, no, it wasn't the first thing with Robert. Well, so give me a little bit of the background of sort of how you got paired up with Robert and chosen among all the crafty guitarist guys to be his partner through these 20 years worth of stuff. Well, unfortunately, you'd have to ask him why that is. <laughs> Certainly, if you look at our history after that, you could say, well, he chose the right guy because we just made a lot of really cool stuff together. We moved together professionally, right, with Sunday All Over the World with a band that he put together with his wife, Toya Wilcox. And kind of from there, it just kept going and going and going. And that's how I see it. Yeah. Okay. So he had a, he had a chance to dump you after the first band, but you uh, passed muster. Well, the thing about <laughs> musicians, well. every day is a day to dump your musician. <laughs> you know, when I hear these people talking about, you know, I have friends who have regular jobs, of course, and the idea that somebody can't get fired or there's something called job security, I just don't even know what they're talking about. It's like, really? Is that true that you just can't get rid of somebody? No, no, no. You've got to go through human relations and you've got to document. I was like, wow, that is not the world I live in. You're gone in an hour if somebody's done with you. And then, of course, you got to play in the double trio with Tony Levin. Was that the prime model for being a Chapman stick player and sort of getting you started? Or were there other... Yeah, absolutely. No, there weren't. There really weren't other ones. They were all of them. You know, Burford, Robert, Adrian. Of course, I'd known Robert for several years. But yeah, playing with Tony. And I mean, interestingly enough, I think Tony was making the choice with the double trio to play bass more and of course play what since has become a big instrument for him which is the upright electric ned steinberger bass so i don't know if he consciously thought well now i've got another tapping guy in the band i'm gonna go another direction but he had kind of his full arsenal of basses that he played with what he called his uh, funk fingers which are drumsticks tied to his fingers yeah the chapman stick and then the ned steinberger upright bass and he could move between them. And of course, what's kind of cool about having a second guy who can also play bass is I can cover bass parts while he's moving between things. So, yeah, but definitely Tony's stick playing in the 80s were, and with Gabriel, but more with the Crimson 80s, was kind of the pinnacle of the explosion of the, the Chapman stick for me. Well, I guess that is a good transition to the final tune that we're going to leave folks with. So the Security Project, it's just covers of early Peter Gabriel stuff. Well, particularly the third album and the Security album, and then a couple of songs from previous things, right? So So and Us are off limits. You can't go... We don't have rules. So the short story of the Security Project is it's a project I have with Jerry Murata, the drummer we were talking about, who didn't just play with Gabriel on the second through the So record. He kind of carved out and invented this new way of playing drums, which Peter used on these records and just really definitive kinds of use of toms and how he does the groove. And Jerry's just a really special player. So Jerry and I, with a couple of other guys, Michael Kotze, 
guitarist, David Jamison, keyboard player, and this very unique singer from Liverpool who can sing dang close to Peter, Brian Cummings. We have a project called The Security Project, and it's kind of re-looking at Peter's older solo material before the so era, before he became big time sledgehammer guy. And so we're specializing, Security Project is specialized in this kind of older, darker, early epic Gabriel stuff. And as you'll hear, it sounds unbelievably fantastic. The idea of it, I agree, doesn't sound that captivating because of course you already have Peter's records or you can see Peter. But the thing is, Peter doesn't play this material. A lot of it, he's either never played it or just doesn't play it live anymore. And we just have taken it very, very seriously and really looked at the material and figured out how to modernize it and be authentic at the same time and then take some of the ideas and run with them in our own way. And I believe this song was is No Self-Control. Is that right? Yep. For me, this comes off the third record, which is what is known as the Melting Face record. And for me, that was just the record that blew my head open. That record and the King Crimson Discipline record and a couple of other records, XDC, Black Sea, U2's first record. These records just blew my head open in 1980, 1981. Talking Heads Remain in Light. Anyway, Peter's third record, I just had no idea what I was listening to when I heard it. I couldn't tell if it was up until that point, a guitar sounded like a guitar, a voice sounded like a voice. But on this record, voices sound like keyboards, keyboards sound like guitars, guitars sound like keyboards, drums sound like cannons. You have no idea what you're hearing. And so we've taken that and the song No Self-Control kind of has all these elements, this kind of world music elements, these heavy rock dissonant Bartok elements, screeching vocals, and we do it live. And, and this is a live record. We realized that we couldn't make a studio record because everybody would know it'd be too easy to manipulate the sounds in the studio. So what we've done is put together a live show that sounds this good. So just to connect this with one of my recent previous episodes, we had Roderick from Sky Cries Mary on here. So Michael Kotze, your guitarist, oh, really? uh, is in that band as well. Yeah, as well as he used to play in a group called Shriekback. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. No, I've, I'd love to get some of those guys on here. I'm big fans of theirs. And it's a Brian Cummings, who looks like just with a Google search that he was in a Genesis tribute band. Is that how you found him? Yeah, he plays in a group called Copper Crawlers UK. And yeah, we found him and he's just a, a perfect match for us, not just musically, but also personally. He's a great guy. He lives in Liverpool. And we just finished a West Coast tour here last week. I'm still recovering from it. And we hit the Midwest and the East Coast in October. Well, it seems that's the way now to uh, Boston and Journey and uh, Yes have all kind of replaced their singers with people that were in tribute bands, you know, that had recorded versions of them imitating that voice. Right, right. And you got the unenviable task of being the fake uh, Kate Bush in backing vocals here in this song. Well, there are several of us, yeah. We do a couple of pieces with, well, I think, I guess it's Game Without Frontiers, but, uh, you know, we just do it the way we do it. And it's really great. It's surprisingly good on stage. People from our last tour, I mean, we hear it all the time, but it's so refreshing to hear it again that people knew that we would be good, but they had no idea they would be moved so intensely from just the sheer impact and the volume of the awesome epic material. Well, I'm very happy to hear this. I think even when Peter Gabriel does songs from this era, he doesn't do them with the weirdness that they had on those records, <laughs> like with him singing like that with a... <laughs> It's always a little more stagey and charismatic and with the more open sound and adding cymbals back in or I don't know. Right. There you go. 
Well, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure to revisit and look at this stuff. It's kind of uh, rewarding. All right. So thanks for having me.
Wow, thanks to Trey Gunn. If you want to hear more, go to TreyGunn.com. I highly recommend the compilation that he came out with in 2010, I'll Tell You What I Saw, particularly because that features not only the work attributed just to him, but the work from his many partnerships. He mentioned K2, so it's a little hard to track down all his work. This is a good way of getting in touch with it. And by all means, go look him up on YouTube, see the tap guitar in action, see the Trey Gun Band live, where he and another tap guitarist are passing riffs back and forth between them, and get out to see the Security Project live. I'm very excited about that. Now, if you enjoyed the interview, Trey actually talked to me for another half hour about his practicing techniques, his ear training, some of the other projects that he's been in, the guitar craft classes that he did with Robert Fripp, and many other topics, and you can hear a couple of extra songs to do that, you have to become a member of the website. That's at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, also partiallyexaminedlife.com. It's the same back end. So you get not only bonus audio for many of these episodes, but lots and lots of bonus audio for my other podcast, Partially Examined Life. Also, hey, there is now a Nakedly Examined Music Facebook page. I really want to encourage all of you to go and like that page. There's a post on that page for every single episode that we've had. So you can find the episodes that you like and share that post. That'll really help us get more of a listenership, and it would also be helpful for you to go to the iTunes store and give the podcast a nice rating or review. Thanks for listening. Keep on musicking. This is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. (laughs) 